and then I learned to become a project manager in my, of myself and have patience and learn how to have some self-love and how to do self-care. And again, focusing on the self-watching and fixing that first. So from that, then I started to climb my way out. If you approach it from, I want to grow, I want to learn about myself, then you will just automatically have something to offer other people. Welcome to Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast, where we talk to experts from around the world about PTSD, financial stress, sleep, mind-body connection, addiction, depression, fitness, and more. You will hear from others who have struggled, overcame obstacles, and continue to thrive. This is where you will learn the tools and resources you need to have a healthy mind and a healthy life. Welcome to another episode of Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ryan Gallagher. We've got a great show lined up for you today. My guest is Brampton firefighter Scott Hewlett. We're going to talk a lot about mental health, his journey, his perspective on mental health, and we're going to dive into his podcast, Multiple Calls, and a couple other things. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. As always, like, subscribe, rate, review, send me any feedback. I really appreciate it. Without further ado, I give you Scott Hewlett. I am sitting down today with Brampton firefighter, Scott Hewlett. So Scott, thank you so much uh, for your time. And we've been kind of going back and forth over text and emails and we connected a few months ago. So I'm excited to learn more about you. And obviously we share the firefighter background and the peer support stuff and the mental health stuff. So I think you've got some interesting outlooks and some life experiences that people can learn from. So thanks again. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I've been excited about it for a while. Beauty. So like anything, the best place to start is kind of from the beginning. So what was kind of childhood like and social life at school? And I had a pretty idyllic upbringing, you know, mom and dad and a younger sister uh, living in a bedroom community in Orangeville, which is about a half an hour north of Brampton, about an hour outside of Toronto. We spent holidays together. We took vacations together. Mom and dad were always very supportive. There really wasn't any kind of trauma to speak of. So on their end, you know, in my relationship with my sister, everything's always been very loving. Despite that, I think I was just always a very sensitive, emotional kid. And looking back, you know, with just with the benefit of hindsight now, being able to reflect on it, anxious, you know, maybe there was some depression in there. And we know nothing's completely uh, biological or completely from your environment. Things are combined in like an epigenetic way. So nailing down exactly where, how it all came to be is tough. But um, school was tough. I think, you know, it was picked up on probably that I was a sensitive kid and there was a lot of bullying going on. So that was hard to manage. And that sort of manifested in its own way. And my parents were aware of it. They did everything they could. They were never dismissive of it. And it manifested in ways of dreams and, you know, just being feeling socially outcast, which many, many kids experience that maybe all of us do on some level which you do but you don't understand that as a young child you think you're the only one right and it's a weird feeling because you want to be a part of everything yet you're being treated in, a, in what you see as an unfair or unnatural way so you want to be part of something that's also not treating you very well so it's, it's kind of a confusing time right to grow up in that especially if you are a sensitive kid right yeah absolutely and because you mentioned the bullying and stuff so what can you kind of say then? Because I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this of you know different age groups and stuff. And now looking back now, obviously when it was happening to you, you almost just go along with it, right? Okay, these kids don't like me; they're being mean. You never really look deeper into them. But what can you say to people maybe that are that are being bullied today? Because a lot of people are losing their lives. You know, they're taking their own life because they're being bullied because of these words. Yeah, I don't think it ends even in childhood. It's funny how things pop up leading up to talks like this. There's always these synchronicities. And someone posted something the other day about a picture that had been taken of them a while back. And they had commented about how someone after that photo had said that they needed to lose a certain amount of weight. And you look at the picture and then them looking back at it now and me looking at it now, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, you're beautiful. You look great. Like, why was that there? Why was that comment brought up? But in the moment, in that damaging effect that that comment has and how it seats into your brain and now you're seeing yourself through your own eyes, that's been now the lens has been adjusted from these other people. 
So I don't think it ends when you're a kid. Bullies are still out there. I don't think the, all the bullies grew up and realized that they were bullies and then they would, you know, they have this epiphany and, you know, bullies sometimes raise more bullies and sometimes you can be in an abusive family or be brought up by someone that would be deemed as a bully and you're not like that and you escape it and, and you never go down that route. So it's, it's a very complicated thing. It, it'd be dismissive just to say to the young kids, well, you know, just focus on yourself and just be yourself and you're, you're valued and you're worthy and just keep being you and focus on your school because the social network is so crucial. It's important and you want to, we're tribal creatures. We want to be a part of something. So this isn't to say that I didn't have friends. There were friends that I had, but maybe a couple versus what you think as a child, you'd think you need to be friends with everybody. So I think I would say if they have a, a friend, even if you resonate with one person, I think that's a golden thing. And it doesn't need to be more than that. And I think we realize as we grow into adulthood that, you know, when you realize you don't have to be friends or align with everybody or resonate with everybody, everyone's going to have different opinions. But you're sort of locked in with this group, especially if you stay in the same school for the whole academic career, well, for elementary and then even to high school, you travel with the same group of people all the way along. So it's hard to escape that. And then they know your history and they can carry that forward. So I guess I would just say, obviously, there needs to be some self-love there and there needs to be some open conversation. Speak to your parents or whoever your caregivers are. Speak to your friends openly about it. I think the more that you let your inside outside to one person or even a number of people that you trust and then believe in them. I think we can be dismissive in thinking, well, you're my mom, you're my dad, you're my friend. Of course, you're going to say these nice things about me because you love me. I approached that wrong and I always thought, well, the real, the people that are giving me the real story are the people that are outside of me because they're seeing the real me. So I chose to align with what they thought where I should have really aligned with what my friends and my family thought and, and trusted in them that they were telling me the truth. I think that's the best way I could describe it. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, finding those peers to support you and, and proper family members. It takes time, but yeah, it, we're our own worst enemy and social media too. Like we, you know, you mentioned the post. It can be used for so much good, but it, it gets looked at, you know, people just look at it so, they look at all the negative stuff, right? And when you post something and people get on you about it or whatever it is, or this person has this many followers and, oh, that's cool. Like who, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I discussed this with uh, my captain not too long ago, and he was thinking of, well, just commenting on how he doesn't really use it or thinking about not using it anymore. And we just talked about how, you know, any, yeah, any tool can be used for good or it can be used poorly. And, you know, like yourself, I'm trying very hard to use it in a very positive way. And also you can curate it. So you can choose what things to let into your life. You can choose what news to bring into your brain and feeds and obviously you should be bringing different opinions not just create your own little echo chamber but i think it's important to know what's going on out there and it, it is a valuable tool for learning something every single day but you got to curate it you got to be really critical on what you follow and then yeah what you choose to comment on to and how you choose to portray yourself absolutely from there i want to kind of jump into obviously your firefighter since 98 but your dad was also in the fire service as well so did that play because I know you did various jobs growing up like most of us and you know, kind of navigate through getting a work ethic and everything but how much of your dad being a firefighter how much did that play a role in becoming one yeah I was around the fire station here and there but dad never made it a really big deal it was just his job and I think that was really great in the fact that he didn't I mean, you can expose your kids to the department as much as you want to, and, and you can do it in the same way where he didn't make it a big deal. It was just his job. And it wasn't pushed on me to have to follow in his footsteps in any sense. But I did pick up on the work ethic from him. You know, he always laid out his uniforms the night before. Everything was always ironed. His shoes were always polished. He took a lot of pride in it. So I sensed the passion and the love for what he did. And I think I picked up on that just in general, wanting that same passion and love for whatever I chose to do. From the tying in just to the bullying there, you know, I was a pretty bright kid. And then hitting high school, I just took, again, I took the wrong tact of uh, that influence and said, well, maybe it's because I'm performing well in school. So I just chose to sort of not live up to my potential and dial things back. So and that also created, well, I mean, I should probably have a bit of an authority problem too, because, you know, all the cool kids, they have authority problems. <laughs> so 
I think that also then transitioned into me not you know, purposely not wanting to do what dad did. I'm going to choose my own path and blaze my own trail. So initially I went down the path of seeing what else I could do, but I was organically, I would say, led back to realizing that it's in me. It's, it's cliche, but it, it, is, it is me. It is who I am, whether you paid me to do this or not. Whether I was on the job right now or not, I would perform this way in the real world. So it just clicked with me that I should try and do this for my career. And then, then again, trying to align myself with what I love and love what you do every day and get up just like my dad did. So I think that's how it all ties in. How long did it take you that, like, to get hired too? Four years. Four years, yeah. There was a hiring freeze. I applied a bunch of different places. I applied and wrote for Brampton, passed their test. They hired a group, but there was a hiring freeze at that point from 94 to 98. And so a bit more of a journey there and a few more courses. And then I came back and they then called me out of the blue and offered me to come in and do the fitness test and get a job. So um, it happens when it happens, right? You just got to keep cracking at it. And that's a really hard thing to tell people. <laughs> Because it is the truth, but it's again, it's tough to hear from people when you're right in it and you're and you're you're on that other side of the fence and you just want to get over there. And it is the truth, though. It can be a wild ride, and you, you do learn like if you're willing to kind of keep that open mind. And it can be tough because I was eight years trying to get hired. Wow. Yeah, and I was a volunteer uh, the whole like for most of it, like with Burlington as well, which obviously is who I eventually got hired with. But the times you want to give up, or you're like, and I think that goes with any job. But you know, this, the emergency services specifically it's tough to kind of work through that so you know eight years of rejection so like if you did four years I mean what did that teach you about yourself well just to springboard off what you're saying it's even harder for somebody that doesn't have full self-esteem or self-respect or self-love self-value if you don't think you're good enough in general in the world and then you're trying to get this thing that you're passionate about and you feel is who you are and you're being turned down I think it's even harder process so, you know, you don't want to be going on the other end of the spectrum, like arrogance, like you think you're the best thing since sliced bread and, they, and you don't understand why no one's taking you and it's all their problem. I mean, we all have things we can grow and work on, but there's the spectrum, right? So it's even harder. Well, when I first started applying, I, mean, I remember specifically interviewing for Toronto and I was 19 years old, right? And I, and I had worked since I was 13. I had an amazing work ethic, a lot of humility. But I didn't have, there wasn't pre-service, I believe, at that point, not that I was aware of, so, you know, random courses here and there. So I had started the, I had started the process. I had a path laid out in front of me of what I thought would be the way to build up my resume. So I wasn't expecting to get on at 19, but things opened up. And I think maybe as a, you know, testing the waters and seeing what is required, I, I you know, I got an interview. So they slid a piece of paper across me it, it, right away and said, go down both sides of the paper and tell us what you have and what you don't have. And it was you know, reading blueprints and trades and it, it went on and on and on and on. And obviously things that I hadn't yet had the time to put in at 19. So a lot of the answers I had were, well, I'm planning this and this is what I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this, but I didn't have it at the moment. So they obviously they shouldn't have hired me. I realized that I needed time to grow. So even though it took me four years, I was okay with that because I feel like I, I saw what they told me. I realized that was the truth. I realized it was going to take me time. So I was just going to put the time in. It wasn't as hard mentally, I think, being rejected because I was able to see it myself for what I was and knew I still had some time to grow. Yeah, and that's another important point for people that are going through, you know, hiring process or trying to get jobs and stuff. It, it will, like you said, it will happen. You just got to be determined and stick with it. But yeah, like for me, I learned a lot about myself as I went on and just kept applying. And I, I didn't, I would get discouraged at times, but I just took things from every interview every test I'm like, okay you know here's my messed up on here's what i can get better at uh, and then took the time to just do okay i'll just do more courses you know i'll do more of what i need to do uh, until i get there i think what really hammered that home for me was even after the four years of gathering all of these things uh, and becoming better educated better prepared in my mind what i thought was for the job and i got to a point where and i never wanted my dad's help I always said, listen, I need to get this on my own. I would never want you to put a word in for me and I get the job because you pulled a string. I need to know I, I got this on my own. But I did get to a point where like, okay, I'm, I'm good enough for this job at this point to, be, to start out. So what's going on? Why am I not getting on? And then 
you do recruit class. And my first night on the trucks, I was going to my first call on the back of the truck with someone that had been on longer than I'd been alive. And I thought to myself, oh my God, they gave me this job. Did they know that they hired me to do this? <laughs> so <laughs> I went right from feeling prepared to feeling all over again, feeling wholly unprepared. And, you know, and I think that's something that is not a bad thing to carry with you through the job because I think if you ever feel fully prepared for things, then it's ignorance and something's going to bite you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. So, and now, so you're on obviously, and now you know, early on. So you ended up doing the paramedic stuff too, right? Yeah. So that was, I wanted to end up at fire, but I always had in my mind that I wanted to do both. And so I thought, well, part of getting onto the department, it just, it works out perfectly that I could go to school, become a paramedic, love that as well. And love that part of emergency services and do that job for however long it would take. And then not leave it, maybe drop down to part-time and, and really still embrace that, that role in emergency services, but also do fire. So I had taken a program during this, this hiring freeze for Branton, you know, and then I said, you know, I, I need to get some more things here. So I need to go away and take a course. And I didn't realize if there was pre-service at the time or not. So I, I took the paramedic course, ended up taking it in the States. And then when I came back, I realized I needed to jump in and get it credited up here in Canada. So got accepted to the paramedic program at Humber for September of 98. But the call from Branton came July 98. So then it was, well, I need to take the career opportunity because it's being handed to me right now. And then I committed myself to come back to that program once I became first class. I'm going to settle into this job. I'm going to learn everything I need to learn, get comfortable enough where I can balance both. Being you know, single, no kids, I can, I can manage both of those things. And then I then applied to the paramedic program again and got accepted once I was first class and did work and school full time for two years, which was an incredible burnout and completely goes against all the things that we're probably going to end up talking about soon. But I was young and ignorant and, you know, I survived it and I, I became better for it. So there was positives that came out of it, but I can't see myself uh, have, having to hold on to both careers for the entire length of a career. Yeah, that's why, and that's why I wanted to ask you. Like, I, I saw that. I was like, oh, wow. We have some people that do both or, or yeah. had done both. And, and same thing. They think at the time, oh, this is great. And then by the end, they're like, that, this is a terrible idea. Because you see a lot, and it's, just, it's a lot of job stresses, and you forget it, like, you know, kind of how to enjoy life on the outside of emergency services. Because I feel like your friends become all first responders because you're so busy oh, with these jobs. Right. So true. I was lucky that I've always had a certain circle of people outside of the service. So then that's been very healthy, not by design, but that's just the way it's happened. Just quickly, I think the, the positive end of doing both jobs was as a paramedic, you're riding with your partner and there's no captain. So you're, you're going into emergency scenes with no real supervision and you really have to own what you're doing and, and make proper decisions and work with your partner. I think that was real positive. I did it in Peel region so I would run into, I tried to stay outside of Branton proper and then, you know, stay sort of north if I could, which I did most of, but I would run into my own crews so they would know me, I would know them. So we would seamlessly tie in on calls like that. And then vice versa, when I'm running in Branton, I'd run into other paramedics that I know. So again, they'd walk in, they'd look at me, they know they had another paramedic in the room. I saw incidents from a number of different angles. I saw it from their perspective. I saw it from my perspective. So I felt like I saw emergency scenes in a more robust way than if I had just been in one stream, if that makes sense. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And I, like I was looking through all your stuff and you've done a lot for yourself, for the service. It's pretty cool to see you know, how involved you are, uh, the, the fire fit stuff and the peer support stuff. And then you even did three years in, in training. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. What was the thought process on that, leaving the floor, I guess, walk me through that and then coming back? Yeah, I'm not sure if that was a don't think, just do moment or <laughs> what, but it wasn't that I was unhappy on the floor whatsoever. I had left paramedic thing behind before uh, my first daughter was born because I realized that was going to be too much. I had dialed back the paramedic work to a certain number of shifts every month. So as opposed to an unhealthy amount where I was working pretty much nonstop before, I dialed it back to say four shifts a month. So it was... Again, I think I was always aware whether it was intrinsic in me knowing about mental health awareness and 
to get it to a reasonable level. So I wanted to be good when I showed up for either job. So I didn't want to be overwhelmed by it and have it beat me down. They started asking for a lot more. And then obviously my first daughter was being born and I wanted to commit time to that. So I dialed it back and just left it. And that was a really smart thing to do. Then some time went by and I had been involved on certain levels of instructing and wanting to make some change within the department in whatever way I could be involved in, part of committees um, and teaching and whatever I could. So I just think, well, I, I didn't really have a, a strong sense to be a captain. I didn't think I was ready to do that or it was necessarily a job that I wanted to do. I really liked the hands-on aspect of things. I sort of found a bit of a niche with instructing. I kind of felt like people resonated with what I said and the way I approached things. So I think the going towards being a training officer, even though there was a different shift, we were doing 10s and 14s at the time too. So we were working a lot more in the month. I think now you really can't compare it to the 24 hour. Also with that shift, I could be home on evenings and weekends and have all the stat holidays done. So there was that aspect of it too for family life. But I really enjoyed teaching. And I think especially when I started teaching recruits, that was, that's amazing. Like I love teaching brand new firefighters. So I feel like I can do my best to give them what they actually need and teach, teach them and treat them the way that they actually need to be taught and, and treated so that they can have the best experience they can have. So I really loved it and love teaching with my peers. So I think so that sort of drew me in. I had just put a random call into the division and said, hey, I'm thinking about this. And like, oh, really? Because we need somebody. So <laughs> it's sort of just like you put it out to the universe and you get drawn right in. Yeah. And I'm glad I did it. You know, there's a number of reasons why I decided to leave it and come back to the floor, which I'm, again, was I dropped in. I think I was a part of a lot of great things, but it was, it was at its end and it was time to come back to the floor. And I'm still a part of making change now, but just from where I'm at, I don't think that will ever end. It's, yeah, it's another weird sort of side street in the journey, but I'm really glad I took it. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to look at things is, okay, I, I can make a change here. I'm going to do this. And now it's run its course, but I can still do things. I just can't do it at this capacity in terms of changing certain things or whatever kind of way you navigate it, right? Uh, some people might jump into a role like that in any job and then hate it, but stick with it. Right. Uh, you know, and at least it's different for every job with the luxury of you could kind of step back and get back on the floor, which is good. That whole idea that you can lead from wherever you are or make change from wherever you are. It's very, very true, but I think the caveat that you need to realize is who can I lead from where I'm at in my years of experience, in my age, and my rank in the department, right? And what change can I influence and in what way uh, given those various things as well? So I think if you, if you run it through that filter, you think, okay, well, here's those, these areas that I can make change in and I can lead from, and then you do those things. Uh, you know, even as a brand new hire on a fire department, you can influence candidates that are trying to get on. Like there are people in the place where you were that you, know, you can help. So there's always people you can influence, always people you can lead. You don't have to be wait until you're 35 years on to put your hand up and say, okay, I think I'm ready to teach something now. Mm -hmm. I agree with that for sure uh, on so many levels, especially the obviously the new hire stuff, anytime anyone wants to get hired and we have a few at, at our station, they come like, if you know, you got a friend of a friend, Oh, come see this guy. He's been here for a year. It's perfect to talk to, you know, cause as you get on longer, the process changes, but you can still give back that. And I think also, like you said, you know, doesn't matter how long, why not sign up? Okay. You know what? I want to teach rope. Cause I look at the way the instructing stuff works in the fire services. It's just, I can learn more about this by becoming the instructor. Yes. And I think is a good way of looking at stuff. I hope everyone does, but I don't think they, that everyone does look at it that way, but it is a good way you go, okay, well I can learn these skills even better because I get to go away on a course for longer and then I can bring it back and just continuously teach it over and over and over repetition. Right. So my, my approach with the rookies that I've had pleasure of being with and working with is that I'm going to keep wrapping this out with you. We're going to keep doing this over and over again. And eventually what I want you to do is you start teaching me and then I fill in the gaps. And then eventually I'm going to talk less and less and less. And then, then you're going to teach me as if I know nothing, because that's when you really know it. You truly know something when you can teach it. And I, I shouldn't, I should have a caveat to that. Teach it properly. <laughs> you can teach anything. You can teach it a number of ways. But I, when I say teach it so that people will actually have a 
intrinsic change inside of them, that's teaching you something or sharing information or instructing however you want to word it. But until you can do that expertly, I think it's not quite at the same level of learning. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's key to remember. So from there, let's just jump into this mental health stuff with you. So you're a lead, I guess, on the peer support team with, with Brampton, but which, and so we've implemented ours, I guess we're probably two years now, year and a half, but you guys have had peer support going since 94. I know you didn't get hired till 98. So can you kind of talk about your experience when you got on kind of what mental health and wellness looked like compared to now what it looks like now and where you think it's going? I think when you get onto a department, whatever it is that the setup is, you just think that's the way it is everywhere. And I was blessed and everybody that came on after that team got started in 94, we didn't know any different. Not to say that there weren't issues still because it was in in its infancy, even just in the general population of awareness of mental health and especially within the service. But we did have a team and I did experience a number of calls where we did, you know, defusings afterwards. And it was led by people that were respected in the department. So I really didn't know any difference. And I was, and now looking back, I just realized how lucky I was that that was the attitude, even though there was a population, you know, even if it was an equal population that didn't approve of it, but there was a population that did. So again, you can choose what to align yourself with. There's always a choice there. So I think not until later in my career where you sort of start to branch out and realize what's going on outside of your own department did I realize that a lot of departments don't have teams or there's a general distaste in the service for this kind of thing. Or not maybe distaste, maybe, well, distaste based on ignorance or however else you want to frame that. I, I did see that there were changes or things that could be brought forward. And like many of the members that have joined the team after I started co-leading it, um, whenever we would go out and do a diffusing with them, or we call them post-incident discussions, we don't call them diffusing or debriefings anymore. I'm using those terms just because that's maybe understood better in the, in the industry. Post-incident discussions, we would do these, and then people afterwards were like, wow, that was... That was totally unlike what I always thought it was, was going to be like. It was just like a facility, just a conversation, just like you and I are having right now. And a lot of people wanted to join the team because of that. All of a sudden, they found that this thing that is they're doing has a real impact because it impacted me. And I had that experience, so I wanted to join the team. That's what got me started into it. So I joined the team, and, and then there was the opportunity, luckily, for me to co-lead. And that was a whole other growth experience. And then like going into the training division, you know, you see, well, if I can co-lead this team, I can take on some more responsibility and I can help the main lead of the team and we can help each other and help the team as a whole to make some change in the department. And then you just tackle things one thing at a time and in a very tactful, respectful, long play game way and you can shift things, but you got to have patience and a thick skin and you have to really know how to listen to yourself and other people. Yeah, and the peer support stuff, is so important, I think, in any industry in the corporate world. And, but it goes back to what you were talking earlier too, right? Being bullied and, and how to work through that but and surrounding yourself with the right people and, and right peers. Because that's all it really is. It, peer support, you have people that are willing to kind of show the empathy and be non-judgmental, right? Put you in an environment where it's just you and that person and you're just talking, where, you know, and, we're not doctors and we're not counselors. We're just humans that are willing to talk or listen. Cause that's really a lot of the time. All somebody wants to do is just talk. And then we just get that extra bit of training. At least I think from my perspective that we can now guide you to that right doctor or counselor, or whatever it is you need. Mm-hmm. Cause talking about things is, is so important. And that's if I can pass anything on to anyone that's just starting a team or the team's I would say in its infancy or, you know, know, I I would say even if you have a team on any level is that you should take as many different programs as possible and read about as many different facets of the topic as possible. You, You need to do a deep dive. You do. It has to be something that you're interested in and educating yourself in because you're interested to do it, to learn, just to open your eyes about the world and not necessarily, well, I'm, I only do this while I'm at work. Again, like this is something that I'm interested in, whether I'm a firefighter and I'm at work or not. Like I, 
I want to learn about it. I want to learn about more about myself. I think that's where it really stemmed from is because I wanted to understand myself better. And so through trying to learn about myself better to figure out why I was having all these issues, you know, dealing with some anxiety, dealing with some depression, I started to educate myself. And then I'm like, well, everyone needs to know this. And then I said, well, this could really benefit the job. So that's how it all spiraled, but in a positive way. But I think you need to choose SISM, for example. We've always used that as our base training. People can really sense, and I think you're really kind of pigeonholing yourself or limiting yourself if you, they can always sense when you're trying to push them through the eye of a needle. So if you sit somebody down or a group down and you walk them through this process very strictly, like, okay, we're going to do this, then we do this, then we do this. No, that's outside of what we're doing. Like, no, we can't talk about that. No, we're got to come back with me now. And you're, you're trying to bring them along on what you want them to do. I think people pick up on that and they don't trust it or they resent it. And I don't think it's helpful. So the more programs you take in different viewpoints, all trying to do the same thing and then take the best of whatever it is that you're learning from each of these things, know your audience, learn who they are, and then just be genuine and authentic and educated and bring that to the table. And when you do that, it just ends up being a, like you said, a very good conversation with just enough of what they need. They don't realize you haven't been trying to, to do anything to them. You're doing something for them and with them. And that's where the benefit comes from. So I know we want to hold on to the little cheat cards that we have and as guidelines, but at some point you just have to educate yourself and then just show up in a genuine, authentic way and be who you are and be a caring person. And that's all you need to be and concentrate more on what you are and not always focusing on what you're not. Right. Yeah, that's, and that's great advice, especially on the peer support standpoint. Like, we can take all these courses, and, and like you said, but you really have to just care and dive deeper, like you said. And that's like kind of that's what I'm doing, obviously, with this podcast. I love learning about people and just people watching. I love just watching people and just to figure out, like, what is that person thinking? What's going through their mind? And that's kind of what I look at just peer support is just knowing, I guess, the person you're talking to, the audience, right? What is going to work for them in a way? Like, is just listening? Are we giving feedback? Are we giving comments? Kind of, which I think if you dive deeper into peer support and take more courses and stuff, it's so beneficial for anyone really in any industry, I think. Uh, and like I said, that's why I'm doing this podcast. I'm in school because I'm so interested in this stuff. I'm now in professional addiction studies. I'm a master. And that was just some alcohol issues I dealt with years ago too. Fast forward now, I'm like, why did it, why was I like that? And learning that route, right? So And that, yeah, if you approach it from I want to grow, I want to learn about myself, then you will just automatically have something to offer other people. And you mentioned people watching, which is very important. And it's a very important skill to have to read people as best as you are able to and sense how you can interact with them to benefit both of you, people watching is fun and people watching is great, but self-watching is fun and self-watching is great too. So I think we need a lot more people need to be self-watchers and maybe start with the self-watching and then go to the people watching. But if you're only a people watcher or people that say that, they may only be ever looking outside of themselves and enjoying that judgmental aspect of it where the self-watching is something that's a little bit harder. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it helps too, like with the training we've received. And, and like I said, back to like, I like people watching in a good way, but then you can, you can approach that person too, if you've noticed something. And if it's a good friend of yours, you have a little bit, if, you know, if they come to you, great, but you might be able to have an, a conversation that kind of starts it. Yep. Some of the stuff we've been kind of trained on, which is great. So you, Obviously, you mentioned the anxiety and depression. So kind of let's go into your mental health, I guess, journey and, and what you're doing now outside of like peer support. So you are with the Mental Health Commission of Canada. I know you did a video. Like, are you teaching? I'm just a strictly an instructor of the Working Mind program, which used to be the Road to Mental Readiness. They've just rebranded it. That's my only connection with the Mental Health Commission of Canada outside of then when I was doing a presentation at the WFI, the Wellness Fitness Initiative uh, annual day at Mississauga Fire. There was someone from the MHCC in the audience and they approached me afterwards asking if I would be interested in, in trying to do a video as part of like a recovery series that they wanted to do. So that's my second connection with them. But 
no direct professional connection with them whatsoever. Okay. So then, so you, you mentioned too, and I read in all the stuff you sent me, so sleep was an issue for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now with this, like the anxiety and depression. So what was going on with your sleep patterns? Cause obviously the importance we know sleep is huge. Uh, and you've battled some pretty deep stuff when it comes to the sleeping and the dreams and stuff. So can you kind of take me through that? That started early on. I would guess when I was around five, six years old, if I had to, to put a year on it where dreams start affecting you, night terrors, definitely. So something, some of them that were very repetitive and consistent. And then the reaction, the, the mental and physical reactions that come from that level of dreaming. Again, especially as a, as a young child, that's very confusing. You don't understand it. You don't have the cognitive or emotional maturity to deal with that level of stuff that you're seeing and experiencing. Your parents can control sort of what you're physically and mentally experiencing and emotionally day to day, but that there's no control over what your mind creates in the middle of the night. So, and I think they did the best they absolutely could have during that time of what was available and what the awareness was for that. Sleepwalking was an issue too. So that gradually shifted into uh, just, I would say, nightmares. The night terrors sort of eased off in my teens. Then, you know, I still dream heavily every single night I sleep. I, I get better night sleeps than others. I guess it's kind of ironic that I went into a, a type of job that we work overnight. I, I had a bunch of jobs leading up to that that were night shifts. And so maybe I should have got into something that was straight days and just worked on my sleep at night. But you know, it is what it is. We are where we are. I lucid dream. So I'm aware when I'm dreaming a lot and then can have some control over it. So that, so I think that kind of helped me to want to figure out what the reason for it was and how do I approach it and what kind of control can I have and how can I shift this? So as much as, you know, I may have grown up being bullied quite a bit, I was always, a, I think a bit of a survivor and a bit of a warrior inside too. I, I would fight back, right? Not I mean, physically at some points, but and mentally I had, to, I had to fight through it too, right? And figure that whole thing out. Looking back, there was obviously underlying anxiety and maybe even, you know, low-grade depression or, or bouts of depression. I don't think everybody can completely remove that or be, when we say recovery, I don't think for everybody that means that whatever you're struggling with gets completely removed. It's gone forever and will never come back. I think for some people like myself, it just becomes something that you learn to manage. And then you learn to have a joyous, thriving, fulfilling life in spite of or despite the issues that you have. They're just the issues that you have, like any other physical ailments. And you approach that from as many angles as you can so that you can live the best life you can. So yeah, I unfortunately, or fortunately, like now looking back on what these moments did for me and how I grew from them, there's that, you know, there's that sense of post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic disorder. You know, we always talk about the negative things that come from it. There's a lot of positives too. The trouble with anything you're dealing with mental health wise, and just as it is with physical health, you're trying to get better in real time while you still have to live your life. You can't always check out of life completely. You have an issue with your back. You can't always completely check out of your life, get better for six months and then check back in where you left off you're still living life. So then you might still do things that might tweak that or make it worse, or you don't have the time to allocate to it. So then it becomes a, a longer problem. I think mental health is the same thing. If you, if you have mental health issues, you're trying to figure this out in real time while you're still experiencing hard times and, and struggles and issues and people. So that makes it extra hard. So we can't minimize how difficult it is to figure all that out while you're still living your life. So the reason I bring that up is, you know, my anxiety was always sitting at a four and I thought that was a zero. I, I mentioned this quite often and not until everything clicked for me, I blew through a four and hit a zero for the first time. And, I'm, and then I had a whole new mi- mindset, a whole new spectrum. So I couldn't bring my brain back to that original form. It was now expanded and I realized, Oh, this is a zero, but I was always going from a four, which I thought was normal for everyone. And I was dealing with issues when they hit me at an, at an eight, nine, or 10. So these issues that if I was at a zero and they occurred to me, they would pin me to a four, that's manageable. And you can work through that and you don't go to as dark of a place. But because I was starting from a four or five or a six and I go to a 10, that's when it's like what you may see as an overreaction to what the actual issue is. 
And, and that's where, you know, the suicidal thoughts and the, you know, coming very close to just not wanting to be on the planet anymore. That's where that, that's why that occurs, I believe. And there's a, it's a very complex host of reasons why someone comes to that thought. But I, I think where your baseline is, has a lot to do with it. So how to change that baseline therapy was, is crucial I, after that and not until that moment because we're crisis managers, not project managers. We show up on scenes and we, it's an emergency. We fix the problem, we leave. So we treat ourselves that way too. I'm not going to respond to myself until it's a crisis. And then it's a real emergency. So now I need to go and, and find a tool and I should be able to use it right away and I get better, which that is completely not how this works. You're a project, not a crisis. It's one thing in training, I'm switching from the trucks to training taught me is that I'm no longer a crisis manager, I'm a project manager. So I sort of learned those skills at that time as well. So not until I you know, was at my actual darkest moments, did I reach out for what I thought I would you know, have a couple sessions with the counselor and then I would just get better. And that led into 16 years later, <laughs> you know, realizing that you need to have a counselor just like you have a dentist and a doctor and all these other experts that you go to. For some reason, we all think we can manage, we can't pull our own teeth, but we can manage our own mental health, which is the most complicated organ in, you know, and structure in the universe. So I don't understand why we feel, think we don't need experts to help us with that. I approached it in the proper way. I never wanted to have sunshine, you know, thrown my way or be lied to. So I just felt better. I wanted to dive deep into what the reasons were and know where I was wrong and where I was right and, and how to get better. So, and then I learned to become a project manager in my, of myself and have patience and learn how to have some self-love and how to do self-care. And again, focusing on the self-watching and fixing that first. So from that, then I started to climb my way out. And I think the last thing I'll say to that, and we can expand on it if you want, is recently uh, I've been going through the past couple of years, you know, some very hard stuff, but managing it in a completely different way than I would have before. Actually, before I get to that, I'll just mention, so I was during this time with the counselor, I was doing all the things I should. I was eating right. I was exercising. I was in a career I loved. I had good family. I'm trying to uh, be active outside and be in nature. I'm doing all the things that if you read a PowerPoint of like how to get better, I was doing all those things and seeing a counselor regularly and nothing was clicking. And the counselor wasn't necessarily pro medication. I get not, maybe not in general, but specifically with me. And he was right about so many things and I owe him my life a number of times over, but I decided on my own, I just have to try medication. I don't know if it's going to work. I might try it. It might not work. And it's not a path that I'm, I can't eliminate until I do it. That's very much my attitude with a lot of things. So I decided to go to my doctor, talk to them about it and get a medication. And as soon as I went on the medication very, very quickly, everything that I was doing on the PowerPoint clicked. And then I, that's when I blew through that, through that four to the zero. And now it didn't eliminate every, all the problems I was going to have in my life, but it made everything manageable. Now I was going from a zero to a four to a five and I could manage and then go back down again. I could actually cope like everyone else does and just have what I would say is a more, I want to say normal level of emotions, but it's all normal. I guess manageable is the best word to look at it. So fast forward you know, these past two years, I've been going through some really hard stuff. And recently, I went back to emotionally back to that deep, dark place I was in that time in that the video talks about where I didn't want to be here anymore. And I could have seen that. And I think in it very briefly, I thought, I said, I'd never come back to this place again. I thought I was, you know, better. I thought I was more capable. This is a failure. All the work I did didn't take. But then I, that's the emotional instant, instinctual reaction. But then I quickly realized right after that thought happened is I was seeing it and processing it in a completely different way than I did in the, when I was back there before. So that's what the work does. All these things you do, and maybe even medication is part of it, it doesn't eliminate the fact that you might emotionally go back to that dark place again, maybe multiple times in your life, maybe worse than you ever were before but it's not going to take you cognitively. You're not going to be there like you were before. And you can, and I quickly pulled out of it. Like within the next day, I came right back out of it again. And I've had the patience now with myself to realize that these emotions, whatever bubbles up, whatever level it's at, it's going to pass. I just have to ride it out. 
do all the things I'm supposed to do. But if I do all those things and I trust in it and trust in that process, eventually I'll come back out of it again. But it's hard when, when you're in that dark place, your brain is telling you, this is the end. It's doomsaying. It's fear mongering. It's a very visceral and emotional place to be. So it's hard to trust. You know, you have to have some faith that it will pass again. Like it's always passed. So I think you start having different conversations with yourself through that and you get yourself out of it a lot faster than you you're a better friend to yourself in the moment than you were before first of all thank you for sharing your story what's going on with you and and it's so important too to like obviously people have a sense of who you are through this whole interview when they you know when obviously when they listen to it but that's the thing with anxiety and depression like you're somebody that is very well accomplished in your field you're a very personable guy you've got a family kids all that stuff but these downfalls happen in life. And that's the biggest thing in, in the mental health world is that I think to end in that stigma, and there's so many people that, oh no, it's not, mental health isn't a thing. I don't need to worry about that. Even though you can look so great on the outside, right? But you're still battling on the inside. And it's awesome that you, you did you know, 16 years with a therapist and still do the check-ins and everything. And that's something that I preach and it goes back even to that peer support thing, finding that someone you can connect with and then taking it one step further and getting the professional help you need. I'm always checking in with therapists and a, and a couple's therapist because it's so important because like yourself, those bad times happen again at some time in your life potentially, but it's how you pull yourself out, which is obviously what you're able to do now because of all the work you've put in. So uh, yeah, the, way I, the way I preach it to people is, you should get a counselor when you're well. You don't wait until you're sick to find a doctor. You don't wait until your teeth are falling out to get a dentist. You get them because you're like, everybody needs one and I'm going to. So you get one. And then with the dentist, you know, more often with the dentist is a better example because we go in for, you know, cleanings every so often as maintenance. We don't have problems. You take your car in for regular maintenance to an expert. So it doesn't have problems or it minimizes how serious they're going to be with a doctor. You should be going in at least a year and, getting checked out so you can take care of these things in little bits. Like with a chiropractor, if you get injured, you're going to go, you know, twice a week or three times a week for a while. And then it, then it dials down twice a month and then you're down to once a month and then you're down to every once in a while you feel yourself out because you have uh, this body awareness. And as soon as you see yourself out, you go right to the first need, you get it tweaked and back into place and you're good again. So we should have the same approach with counselors. You should go in when you're well, you can actually find someone you connect with, not in that crisis mode, panic, like frustration, and then you're more angry and you think the system sucks. And so I feel for the people that are in that mental dark place and are needing emergency help. And now they need to try and find that right person that they click with. It's so, it's so difficult. And I was lucky enough to land on someone that I clicked with right away, the pure, utter luck but I can understand how hard that would be. So get someone while you're healthy. Go, even though you think you have nothing to talk about, I bet you, you can fill an hour. I guarantee you, if you've never been to a counselor, you could probably fill an hour with what go, what's going on in your life. And your hour will go by and you'll realize, oh my God, we didn't get anywhere and I need to talk about more. So you're going to get in there, you're going to let off whatever your baggage you're bringing in to the room and they're going to get a baseline of who you are you're going to get a baseline of who you are. Maybe you'll stave off a bit of stuff that might have been coming around the corner that you didn't realize. Or when it does, at least now you have your go-to. So, and I think peer support and having a counselor, having doctors and all these people, sometimes there's a, there's a bit of a placebo effect. Just the fact that I have one and I know it's in my back pocket, I end up, this is what you do. They, they scaffold you and then you start to learn about it and then you need them for less and less. And then you start to use the, you learn what they know. So you need to go to them less. Like, I guess if I spend enough time around my mechanic, I'd probably learn how to fix my car and I wouldn't need them anymore. <laughs> but I don't have the time to do that. It's not really what I want to do, so I just keep going to them for it. So that's fine. You can, you can parse out these parts of your life that you can't do everything in your life all the time. So you choose what those things are. But I don't, I think you immediately, initially, you need, to, you need to source out your mental health support until you figure out what they're doing for you and with you and then you can do it more and more and you go less and less. So now I have to realize, oh, I haven't been in six months. Oh, it's been a year since I've seen him. I better go in. And then you celebrate the little wins when you realize that you have been managing for the past year in a very healthy way and growing and surviving without them. 
right? It's sort of like the student becomes the master in a sense, right? And anything that you want to, any topic you want to land in there. Yeah, it's a great approach. And you were lucky that you got someone right away. And, and that's the other thing is just keep at it. Keep finding that person to talk to. I know with me, and like I said, I always do the checkup, check in with a counselor, but it took me a while to find the right person. But I at least, you know, I had the thought in my head, like I, I can talk to someone, I can find the right person. Because I was dealing with my dad dying at 16 years old. I didn't deal with it until 15, 16 years later. Ugh. I kept questioning, like, why do I want to drink every time I feel sad? Why? So then I finally started talking to someone and found the right person. It took me a while. And, and anxiety, depression, all that stuff, it is a process. It really is. And you just have to, it's crappy. You have to put the work in. And I get that it's hard to at times for people because they can't think straight at times because of it. But if you, you know, you work at it and you find those right people, it, it can get better, which you is. Need take, you need to take small steps if you're if you're minute to minute then live minute to minute and and but then celebrate the wins so if if literally you can't get out of bed and you know getting out of bed and having a shower is a huge win so you need to celebrate that that wow and this is where i realized that two things that you can understand a lot of things logically and rationally you can you know, initially when you're talking with someone, even the counselor, they're going to explain a lot of things to you and you're going to understand logically and rationally everything that they're saying, even about yourself, you'll understand it. Well, this, 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 and this happened. So that makes complete logical sense that, that I'm experiencing this, but that doesn't shift the experience. So you don't know, just like me experiencing from a four anxiety to a zero for the first time, you don't know you can feel different until you feel different, which is a complete paradox, right? So really just like me trying out all these things are on a PowerPoint or trying out medication because I'm, it's the last ditch effort to see if, if it will help. You literally have to take, you know, and you can see this in the spiritual religious sense, if you want or not, you have to take this leap of faith. You just have to trust and try and become a self experimenter to go. I'm going to take this leap of faith that you tell me if I do all these things, I'm going to feel better. I don't believe you emotionally inside myself right now but I'm just going to trust it. Screw it. What do I have to lose? Well, I have a lot to lose if I don't actually, because I, I might not want to be here anymore. That's a lot to lose. I lose my life. So why not do it? So then you become a self-experimenter. You take a leap of faith. You do these things in spite of and despite fear and the anxiety. So I still have the anxiety. I still have the depression, but I need to be, and I think this is where the courageousness comes in. You have to act in your life because you said you're, you're doing this in real time. You need to do it while you're suffering right? Which is brutal. I don't want to minimize that or dismiss that. It, you can't applaud people enough for acting and surviving in life while they're struggling deeply. That is, it's incredibly, I don't think people give themselves credit or we give people that are struggling like, like that enough credit for surviving and operating in the world like everyone else does. It's not having the issues while they're having that deep of a problem. It's, it's not easy. So you need to have this leap of faith and you, and you need to try things for longer than a week or two weeks or a month or a year. Like you just need to keep at it without knowing if it's even going to work. <laughs> and, then, and then one day, some certain combination of things that you've been doing and struggling with for a long time, like it happened with me, it just literally clicked. And then I could never undo that. That for me is always there. And just no matter what happens now, I have it. So it's not something you can teach to somebody. It's not something I can, I can point to or a friend shared this meme with me the other day. It was a one caption comic. It was a stick figure and he had bags of money all around him and it was about survivorship bias. And it said, I poured all my money and resources and savings into playing the lottery and it finally paid off. You can too. Right? So we have to be careful when we speak about mental health and about recovery and surviving that we have the we have the biasness of of hindsight, right? I can go well, all this worked for me. You should just do everything that I did, and it'll work for you. That that's key. We gotta we gotta lay that out here as these talks go on. Is that you can try to be an inspirational speaker, and something might inspire something in so, in someone. But my path is not your path, and I haven't lived the life you have. So you're gonna have to take these things from all these different places that you learn from all these different people and put it together for you. And again, that's hard to do when you're in that deep, dark place. Let's, let's always overlay that with that. So I applaud people that do it. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. We always play woulda, coulda, shoulda. It happened to work out for me in the way that I did it. 
Could I have done it sooner? Of course I could have, but this life played out the way it did. So yeah, be patient with yourself. And if you're a loved one of people that are struggling, you need to be patient with them too. So I think that's another great message. Take it slow. And yeah, again, it's very important to point out what, what works for one person. Obviously it doesn't work for everybody, but you know, find your way. And, and it's very hard to do that when you're in that dark place, but celebrate those little wins and it can go a long way. And then once you build that support system, like I always, I like to say that I have a team around me. And like I said, I go to a counselor, my wife and I see somebody, but I also have a massage therapist and I have a psychopath yes. that I see monthly or every two months, whatever I need them. And then obviously a family doctor and then the right people. I built a team around me that kind of helps me through life. And we all have ups and downs and it's important that we have those resources available to overcome things. And that's why I think with gratitude and you obviously have it, we need to have an amazing amount of gratitude for the fact that we have the access to the resources we do. Cause then you think about what it takes to get out of that and even to manage it once you get it. And there's people that don't have any of that. Oh, I just, I don't even, yeah, I don't even have words for it. Yeah. And again, like you said, it's a process and just we want people to keep at it. Yes. And, you know, like my route was going to a counselor, didn't work, went to the next one, went to the next one. You found someone right away. So just it's important to kind of keep an open mind in those things and not just give it one try. And it's like, you know, in the fitness world, right? I'm going to try a diet. And then right. 30 days and you, you feel terrible. Well, because it didn't work for you, work for this other person. Right. Maybe try something else. That's key too, is what you just said there about, about working out. You don't go to the gym and exercise once and come home and look at yourself in the mirror and go, what the hell? Why isn't things, why haven't things changed? Exactly. Yeah. So it's the same process. Yeah. Keep working at it. Uh, mm -hmm. so tell me about the podcast that you've got going. Mm -hmm. um, During my time in the training division, obviously you're lucky enough to be exposed to, you know, hundreds of new people that you're going to meet and you spend a lot of time with them and they spend a lot of time with you and you're going to learn a lot about yourself through that process. And you get a lot of, you know, you could get some negative feedback, but you're going to get a lot of positive feedback too. And I remember distinctly someone saying to me, you should do a podcast. I, I'd listened to it. And I thought I kind of wasn't aware of, I mean, I guess I, I might've been aware of podcasts because I realized what he, what it was when he said it, but I appreciated the comment. I took it more of like, wow, you enjoy what I'm doing here for you. And it's impacted you. And that means a lot to me. And I recognize that I've been, I've been putting that intention in. That's the feeling that I've been putting out. So I, I'm really glad you're picking up on it and I'm glad I'm effective. Right. And you're enjoying it, but I kind of sloughed it off like, Oh, you know, that's nice of you to say, but I don't really deserve to do that. Or I don't have much to offer. I guess that's in my own mind. That's kind of what I was thinking, but it was sort of in the back of my mind for a while. And then I ended up moving out uh, outside of Brampton and had a, about an hour and 50, we have, I have an hour and 15 minute commute. So instead of driving seven minutes, I had this long drive and I kind of want, now I had this like, wow, there's this opportunity to listen to different content and just, you know, putting the radio on for seven minutes and driving in. So I wanted to fill it with something that would benefit me in other ways than just music benefits me. So I started listening to podcasts and through that, listened to some key ones where I really admired their approach and how articulate they were and how they viewed the world and were open. And then I discovered some firefighters that were doing the same thing. They, they were open and they were trying to make a change in their service. I had already done the training division thing. So, so then it just keyed on me that, wow, I've, I also have a friend in town who I owe an incredible debt of gratitude who has a studio in his basement and allows me to go in and record and show me the ropes and editing. And so again, all the things kind of align with that first little universe message. And then everything sort of led towards this opportunity, which you have to recognize and, and, and seize upon. And I think what got me over the hump of, you know, I don't necessarily think I have a lot to offer or there's already a lot of great people out there doing great things. And there's not really a niche to fill because they're taking care of it all. All these people that I'm listening to and learning from, they're already doing it is that I see myself more as an echo and an amplifier. So I don't need to bring brand new thoughts to the world. I can find great people that have, are doing great things or have done great things that have great thoughts and be the medium for them. 
So I started it with friends that I really, you know, I'm going to have more and more of those people on over the years, but you can only do so many uh, a year, you know, close friends that I trusted that, that trusted me to with their stories. And, and then I figured, well, I'll bring them in and that'll sort of get my feet wet. It'll be an easy conversation get me into the process. And then I released them and they enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, I learned so much about them, even though if I've known them for 21 years, I learned something about them. And I got some good feedback from people listening. And I just think it sort of picked up from there. And I think I'm interjecting myself less and less into it as we go. Like I'll ask the question and sit and listen and just let the person talk. Whereas you're trying to you know, keep the conversation up a little bit in the beginning. Yeah, so I'm getting better as, at it as it goes. It's getting some good feedback, as I'm, as I'm sure yours is too. Like, I'm, again, I'm glad to, to have discovered yours. It just, it adds into my like favorites content that I cycle through with whenever I'm driving. And I'm really enjoying it. So I don't see when I'm going to stop it. And, and there's really no deadlines or timeline. Like I, I do the work and I release it the way I release it whenever I release it. And people seem to be okay with that. So I think I'll just trust the process and keep going with it. Yeah, it's definitely fun too. It's a fun process. I've listened to a few yours. It's very well done. I love that you edit it and you're just taking your time with it. That's one thing I did the opposite. I jumped into it and was like, here we go. And now I still live and like, wait a minute, let's take some time. So I'm still banking some content and all that. It is fun and it's it's free information too, right? Like you said, it's why wouldn't you just listen to yeah. what you like and enjoy and, and then you know, obviously you have the option if you don't like it, you turn it off and move on to the next one. But there's so many out there that you can learn and pull mm. And that's where I was at. I'd listen to this one. I'm like, oh, I like that person. I'd pull this in everyday life. I just pull different things, right? Uh, and then I was like, I'll just do my own. So, well, you're fantastic, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And, and the stuff you're doing is, is awesome and very inspiring. So where can we find you on social media? And it's under your podcast, right? I think multiple calls is your social media stuff? Or? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe people don't know, but... In- you do is that the podcast has to actually be hosted on a website like so, something like soundcloud right so soundcloud is where you can find mine it's called multiple calls multiple calls because whenever we're on the way to a, a fire call if you, we hear you we've got multiple calls on this it's usually like well this is something legitimate so i kind of wanted you know it to sort of resonate that i'm trying to do something legitimate here yeah so soundcloud you can search multiple calls on there on facebook it's at multiple calls podcasts uh same thing on instagram there's also a standalone website on squarespace so multiple calls.squarespace.com and on that website there is a description of how the podcast got started and the intent behind it a little bit about me there's also a a credits page which i have to update which i'll 100% be throwing you on there people that are making an effort and trying to change things out there and there's a resource page too, which I'm going to, I still have to add your podcast onto there. So I've, I've itemized everything in categories from books and articles, you know, and then DVDs and then uh, pages, Facebook pages and other podcasts and I've hyperlinked them all. So you can go on that resource page and just click on something that interests you and it'll bring you right to that spot. So I kind of wanted to like, you know, curate all these amazing things and put them in one place again to be an, an echo and an amplifier and a springboard for people to go one-stop shopping and get everything they need. So I would recommend that people check that out to see how much great stuff there actually is out there. Very cool. So my last question for you that I ask everybody is what moment of adversity are you most grateful for today? <laughs> I, I was thinking a lot about this when I, I heard you ask other people and then you'd be asking me. Yeah. I, I, I like to tear things right down to that, to the base of where it kind of all started. And, and I guess Maybe the anxiety and the depression and the the dreaming and and that process of growing up and how it was socially, you know, as much as you want to, it sounds nice to relieve all that stuff off you. I wouldn't necessarily become who I am because of it. And I think the greatest success through it, and I was given this message by a few people, is that I was able to hold on to being empathetic and compassionate and sensitive but then learn how to harden myself and toughen up. Do you know what I mean? That whole thing of like, well, suck it up. Well, there is an aspect of that. Like I was able to foster the warrior, but in that warrior sense of, of still holding on to that sensitive part of yourself. So that's the yin and the yang. I think you need, you, if you're going to tr- attempt in life to be as whole as you can be, I'm glad I didn't sacrifice one part of me for the other. And there's that whole idea of you'd, you'd rather be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war, right? So there is a point of you need some grit and some toughness and some 
you need to be able to survive, but, and you need to fight when you need to fight, but you need the empathy and compassion and softness and gentleness. So I think being able to straddle those two worlds or integrate them in together, it would be even better. I think that's the, the greatest success. Great answer and, and great story. I said it before, keep doing what you're doing. And, and again, thank you for the time. And I will put everything in the show notes and all your stuff and all your links. And that was awesome conversation. So thank you. Cool. My pleasure. That's it for me on Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Scott Hewlett. Thank you for joining us today on the Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. If you know someone who can benefit from being part of our community, share this episode with them so they too can continue to grow and sharpen their mental edge. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to listen. We would love to hear from you. Connect with us at mentaledge.ca. And until next time, remember, healthy mind, healthy life.